0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So let's look at Psalm 44 today. It's a rich psalm, and I'm excited about what God is going to do through this psalm in each of our lives. Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O oh God ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But... You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way, yet You've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love and Father, I pray you would speak to us through this word, you would give us hope through this word, that we would cherish Jesus and cling to Jesus more deeply because of this word, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do a work that would produce fruit in us from this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think for a second about what your, your perspective would be on Christians If everything you knew about Christians came from Instagram, you probably would have a pretty amazing expectation of what the Christian life should look like. Filled with happiness and lots of babies, smiling kids at the playground the perfect picturesque devotions happening every morning with your favorite Bible passage underlined, the steam coming up through your fingers, that theological book you'd never actually read but you hope to in the background just quite set in the picture. But what's the reality behind the Instagrams? I think the reality of the Christian life is actually one in which there's a lot of sadness, there's a lot of struggle, there's a lot of suffering. You see, the normal paradigm in scripture is actually that the Christian life is hard and not that it's all Instagrammy worthy, you know? Not all just easy all the time. And the Bible gives us a lot of reasons for why that is. It tells us that sometimes it's just cuz we did dumb stuff and that's the natural consequence. You know, Proverbs 18 says a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. You know, sometimes we just do dumb stuff, and then the consequences of life is hard. Sometimes it's God trying to get our attention because we sinned, right? We have a pattern in our life. God brings something in to correct us, like a loving father disciplining his children. But the hardest of all, I think, is when life is challenging, when sorrow is deep, and we don't know why. We can't trace a cause. It's inexplicable. It's like the stormy waves of life just keep crashing into us. And every time we feel like we rise up to get a breath, another swell knocks us to our knees. Many of you are probably familiar with the Coptic Christians, that viral video that went around of the 21 people being executed by radical jihadists. This is what a news article in 2017 said about that. It said, the Libyan police found the remains of 21 Coptic Christians whose throat had been slit by ISIS on the Mediterranean coast in what was one of the most shocking media episodes of their horror propaganda. The images of the blood-stained orange suits and the covered bodies of the victims lined up in a desert area was released yesterday. The discovery took place not far from the coastal area in west of Serte, where the massacre took place on January 2015. A few weeks, weeks later on February 15th, the image of men dressed in orange suits bent on their knees, each with a militia dressed in black, holding a knife at their throats, standing behind them, was spread as a macabre message of the jihadists and bounced quickly across the world's media. You probably remember this. What a sad story of persecution. What a horrible, horrible example of, of suffering. Did these folks know why they were being dragged to the beach shoreline? Could they trace a specific cause, a specific sin pattern, a specific stupid action that had taken place that was causing their suffering? No, God's word is clear. There are times when the unknown trial comes along. There are times when we're hit with a suffering haymaker, right, that we don't know where it came from. Have you found yourself in a season like that? Maybe some of you have found yourself to the point where you cry out, Where are you, God? Why would you do this to me? What have I done? Well, it's out of those same exact questions that this psalm rises. It's those that very place. And it says this. This is our main point if you're taking notes like Bill today. He told me he likes to take notes. It says, this is the main point. In the midst of trials of unknown cause, our only hope is in our helping God. In the midst of trials of unknown cause, our only hope is in our helping God. And for some of you guys, this is gonna be a preparation message. You're not in this season now. Life is not too t- tough, but it's gonna get tough. You know, we have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. There are times that are coming that it will be difficult. And this is for God giving it this to you so you can look back on it when that trial comes. For others of you, you're rock bottom today. You're at this place. And this is God reaching into your situation, particularly in speaking this word of hope to you. He's helping you see that in the midst of trials of unknown cause, our only hope is in our helping God what we're gonna do is examine this theme by looking at three ways this passage shows us how we, we place our hope in our helping God. So how does the psalmist do this? He does this three ways. He said he remembers the story of grace. That'll be our first point. Then he tells God about his trial. That'll be our second point. And then finally he requests only God's help. So let's look at that first point remembering the story of grace. Did you notice that? He didn't start the psalmist in verse 1 with his situation. You know, how often do we do that, right? We start with, God, here's what's going on. He starts by remembering the story of grace. He begins by remembering the incredible grace of God that brought Israel into the promised land. Let's look at that in verse 2. You see this really emphasized. He says, you with your own hand drove out the nations. He is going back to this, this time where Israel is brought into the promised land and giving all of the credit to God, recounting the faithfulness of God. You see this again in verse three. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So he's giving all the credit of past victory, of past success, to God's faithfulness. And the reason that he gives us in verse 3 is not because of their impressiveness, not because they were so attractive that they caused God to pick them as the promised land nation. Verse 3 says, For you delighted in them. God bestowed his grace upon Israel out of the sheer kindness and love of his character it wasn't Israel's sword it wasn't their power it wasn't their attractiveness that had earned them god's past faithfulness god had just been faithful and it's the interesting thing here is that he doesn't even just stop there with a crowding Israel's history of god's faithfulness he moves it to his own personal story in verse 4 he says You are my king, oh God. Suddenly, my king. He says, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. You see how he's personalized the story. He's taken the past history of of God's faithfulness and placed his own story right in the middle of it. And friends, how do we place our hope in a helping God? We put our narrative, our story, in the broader story of God's grace. You see, the God that was faithful to Israel, the God that was faithful through Jesus Christ, the God who is faithful to you is the same God, and he's been faithful in each of those stories. And the amazing thing about remembering God's story of grace is you're reminded that there was never a point in which you weren't dependent on God. Do you see that? You know, it's probably the most amazing thing that happened for Israel. They got the promised land. They were absolutely dependent on God. You know, remember the story of Jericho? Joshua leads the army in. They're like, we're gonna take these guys down before we were wimps and we, got, we just ran away from these giants, but this time we're gonna get them. But God says, lay down your swords, lay down your bows, just blow your trumpets. They marched around this big city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, right? God gave them the promised land. They were absolutely dependent. And think about what hope that gives you in an unknown, unknown trial, a trial of unknown cause. Oh yeah, man, I'm absolutely dependent on God right now, but I always was. In the past, I've been absolutely dependent upon God's faithfulness. And there's nothing that's changed in that regard for me today, even as I look at a situation that seems totally hopeless. So don't under- underestimate the power of looking back on God's faithfulness, brothers and sisters. And I have to ask you, when was the last time you did that? Are you just living kind of stuck in the present, where, like, the tyranny of the urgent is just, like, all you can think about? Like, what I got to do tomorrow? We need to regularly, systematically in our lives, rehearse this story of grace. Put our story in the broader story and remember that we've never had our acts together. We've never been able to do it on our own. It's always been the arm of God, the sword of God, the bow of God that has brought us to this place through the many battles of our past. So that's the first thing we do. And we place our, our hope in a helping God by remembering the story of grace. But we also see what he does next. In verse 9, the psalmist begins to tell God about his trial. And up until this point, this is our second point, telling God about our trial. Verses 1 through 8 have been pretty rosy. They've been pretty, you know, easygoing, haven't they? And actually, there's some like liturgical uh, traditions that use verses 1 through 8 for like a call to worship. Hey, everybody, come on in. We're going to worship God. And they read one for eight. But they don't read nine, and they totally miss the point here. Right? Because then now we get this crashing word that comes in. Arr! You hear the, the record skip, right? But even though God has been faithful in the past, that ain't what I'm experiencing right now, frankly. That's what it doesn't seem like God is faithful in the present. We see that in verse nine. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. And that word rejected or spurned in other other uh, translations doesn't just mean God withdrew. It means God pushed you away. He feels like the God that delivered them is the God that is kicking them out. This is a section of scripture here where it just keeps getting worse as you hear him describe his situation. It's almost like somebody tells you a story and it sounds bad and it just keeps getting worse with every little detail they keep adding. Like, oh, I, I like really got this horrible hangnail um, from a, a car accident I was in when I was trying to turn my blinker. And that is the reason why I'm now writing to you from my hospital bed. right? Where you're just like, whoa, whoa, this situation is awful. That's kind of like what's happening here in this section. Let's read about it in verse 10. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. They have been plundered. That's horrible. Verse 11, even worse. They have been ravaged like sheep by wild animals. So they're either dead, or if they're left alive, they're scattered. They're isolated from each other. Verse 12, now they're not just scattered they've been sold as slaves and not just any kind of slave, worthless slaves. John Calvin writes about this section. He says, here seems to be an allusion to the custom of exposing things to auction and selling them to the highest bidder. We know that those slaves who were sold were not delivered to the buyers till the price of them had been increased by bidding. So slaves would be brought before people, and there would be bidding that would happen for these slaves, and the higher the price, the more valuable the slave. And what the psalmist is essentially saying here is, we were like not even just a slave. When we were brought in front of everybody, nobody made a bid. Or maybe they didn't even circumvented that whole process. So they weren't even brought before because it would be embarrassing to bring this slave up for auction. This is a low point. It's getting just lower and lower as we keep going. In verse 13, now it goes national. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. Verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Israel's become like a catchphrase for just like a, a cautionary tale. Like, don't become like Israel. Right? All the nations are sitting around making up their plans. They're like, but we don't want to do that because you know Israel. Israel has become a laughing stock to the nation. And in verses 15 to 16, we see it culminate in the effect on the psalmist. All day long, all day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, the sound of the enemy and the avenger. So we see this national and personal delight of verse 3, for you delighted in them totally flipped around. Delight has been replaced with shame. And the psalmist is in that place of, why, God? Where are you, God? What a devastating description. It puts, honestly, my puny trials like in the right place. Like I haven't gone through anything compared to this. For some of you, you may have gone through stuff like this. But the crazy thing is, Even if we've gone through horrible things, we know that God's hope extends into situations like this. Think about it. Has a loved one abandoned you and made you feel worthless? The psalmist was sold for no price, a worthless slave. Have you had a spouse or abusive father who's left you with massive trust issues? The psalmist was plundered. Talk about trust issues. Has a spiritual depression seeped into your mind, pinning you to your bed in the morning, driving you to self-harm and doubting your salvation? Shame is before the psalmist all the day long. You see, in the, the, the depth of this situation, hope lives. Because there's no situation that is too bad, or too shameful, or too awful for you to tell God about it. You see, though you feel ashamed, God is not ashamed to hear your words. The psalmist is speaking as one who has an audience with his maker, isn't he? He writes as though God is listening. If if God were not listening, he would not write. You see, there's no situation that should drive us to a place where we're no longer crying out, to God. But this isn't just a desperate situation. The psalmist goes on to tell this. This is a situation that's of inexplicable origin. And you see this in verses 17 through 24. These verses leave no room for us to say, maybe he was sinning. You see, he said things like, We have not forgotten you, we have not been false to your covenant. To his knowledge, there's no way in which he's broken God's law and caused this hardship to fall on him. So even from the depths of his inward parts, from his heart, to his outward actions, to his knowledge, he said, I'm trying to live for you, Lord. Why is this happening? And with no other possible reason, we finally see the psalmist in verse 22, place the cause on God himself. For your sake, we are killed all the day long for your sake. That's an incredible thing to say, isn't it? God has placed me here for his sake. And honestly, the Psalms don't say that a lot. This is a fairly unique contribution. It's a, it's a moment of real honesty where the psalmist says this. How could God, the God of compassion, the God of generosity, the God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who protected a really rebellious Israelite remnant, how could he extend this extreme trial into his follower's life? How could he make it so inexplicably for his own sake? Well, the psalmist is going to lead us there. But before I continue, I just need to clarify. There, there is a real category if you are in sin and you are doing something that's contrary to God's word, that the trial very well could be there because you're sinning. Right? That's a very real biblical category but that's not the one being addressed here, right? This passage is talking about the inexplicable trial. And honestly, I think too often we can sometimes explain our situation in such a way where we we demand there to be some obvious cause. Okay, I must be sinning. We have to have a real category in mind as we approach these things that this really could be bound up in the hidden purposes of God for his own sake, And too often what we do is we allow our trial to drive us to silence. We go inside. We go internal. We run away from God. But that's exactly the opposite of what this guy does in this psalm. He doesn't stop crying out, even though his situation is most likely far worse than yours, he continues to commune with God. He continues to pen these words, to write to his God, to cry out to him for help. So friends, don't stop reading your Bibles. Don't stop praying. Don't stop communing. Don't stop opening up in fellowship. Don't stop coming to church because you don't understand why a trial is in your life. The for your own sake trial is cause for you to press into God and not to run away. The last thing we need is to stop speaking with God. What's the the first thing that happens when we stop speaking with him? The devil attacks, twists our thoughts, puts thoughts in our mind, or our thoughts go unchecked. You just don't even realize that you're getting bitter. You're getting angry. And you, all of a sudden, before you even realize it, you've got these emotions that are just flared up and raging. But if you talk your trial to God, if you commune with him, there's something sanctifying that takes place. There's an there's a element of putting your trust in God and putting your hope in your helping God that happens when we tell him our trial. And that's always preparing. I... I really felt like the Lord gave me a picture, so test this, obviously. Maybe this isn't for anybody here, but I had a, I had a picture of a, a highway that, that was like in Los Angeles, where there's just filled with cars, traffic like crazy. And it's nighttime, and you're looking down from an aerial shot, and it's just filled with lights. It's this obvious sign, even from outer space, that there's life here, that there's activity, that there's relationship happening. And that as you look down on your life, you would see that as nothing but a barren highway right now. And that highway represents your relationship with God, your communication with God. And I just believe the Lord wants some of us who have gone silent in our requests of God, some of us who the, the, the highway is barren of vehicles, to start driving along that pathway of prayer again today. God wants you to have a highway that's lit up with lights of communication and that's him helping you right now to know. You don't have to have your situation fixed before you start crying out to him. He wants you to cry out to him. So how does the psalmist place his hope in helping God? He recounts, remembers the story of grace. He tells his trial to God and then he requests God's help. Let's look at that in verse 23 through 26. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? How many of you read that and were like, whoa, right? What is he saying here? I mean, this is kind of like strong language, isn't it? It kind of reminds me of Elijah at Mount Carmel when he's like battling the priests of Baal and and they can't get their altar to light on fire. And he's like, ha ha, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he needs to relieve himself. And you're like, Whoa, he just threw like a dig at at their gods. And now we see the psalmist using similar language here. We're like, is this biblical, right? Are we supposed to talk to God like this? Well, the interesting thing is that imagery of asking God to awake, to rouse, is maybe not as rare as you think. Psalm 78 might be one you want to look at, and it describes God waking up like he was asleep. Psalm 7 and Psalm 35 urge God to wake up. It's a pretty common way of calling God to action. And the imagery is not so much telling us that God's sleeping on the job, it's more telling us that God truly is affected by our prayers. There is a very real sense in which God responds when you say, Please help me, God. And it's like stirring from a slumber in that sense. Not that he doesn't seize, not that he's not aware, not that he's not in control, not that he's some deistic God off, you know, in the in the corner but that he has a relationship with you that's real, that your prayers really matter, that your requests are real. See, why do we stop asking for deliverance? We stop asking because we don't think anything's gonna happen, or we don't think anybody's listening. But the psalmist shows us how to keep our hope set on God. We place our hope and our help in our helping God by crying out, help us, wake up, oh God, rouse arise to my side. We keep knocking. We keep praying. We keep asking. We keep pleading with our God that he would rescue us from our plight. We need to be like that crazy, persistent widow of Luke 18. Remember her? She's just like knocking on this judge's door like all night long. And the judge is finally like, okay, I'll find out, like, what do you want? God, Jesus actually says we should pray like that. We should keep knocking, keep asking, keep requesting of our God. So whether, you know, there, there are some seasons where we'll be aware that a trial is here to stay, and we have a peace from God for that season. You think of Paul, right, with the thorn that he prayed to have removed. Those seasons are real, and that, those, are, those are good ones. But if we don't have a peace from God for the season, we should not stop asking God to remove that trial and remove that sorrow from our midst. Does faith look like trusting God when we don't know when the season will pass? Yeah, it does. It looks like that. But faith also looks like never stopping asking and never stopping to just request that God comes to his aid. You know, another thing about my prayers is they're way too hedged sometimes. I'd be like, oh, um, Lord, please bless Jacob. But if you don't, here's all these other things. You know, I don't like ask boldly, right? I'm not like actually believing that Jacob could have that thing happen for him in that moment, right? And the psalmist is not hedging his bets. He's asking for a miraculous, complete turnaround of his his previous situation. Look at these. Look at what he asks for. So he feels like God is asleep and has forgotten him earlier. So he says, rise up. He feels rejected and pushed away by God. So what does he say? God, he says, help. He says, come after me. You feel like you're pushing me away. Come to me. Reverse that completely. He feels like a worthless slave. What does he say? Redeem me, doesn't he? To buy back with a cost. He says, buy me back as precious God. I feel like you cast me away as a worthless slave. He can't remember what it feels like to experience the delight of God. So what does he appeal to? The very end there, for the sake of your steadfast love. He asks boldly. He asks for a complete reversal of his fortunes. So friends, have you allowed the inexplicable trial, the trial of unknown cause, have you allowed that to push you away from God? Have you allowed that to silence your prayers? Those trials are not intended by God to push you away. They're intended by God to draw you nearer to him. And the amazing thing is that we have this verse lived out now, this side of the cross. We now know about Jesus in a way that he didn't, right? And what happened in Mark 4 when there was a stormy sea and the disciples were in a boat with Jesus? Jesus. Jesus went to sleep in the bottom of the boat. The storm went crazy. The disciples were terrified. The whole boat looked like it was about to capsize or be destroyed. And they descend into the belly of the boat. And they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So what was our Savior's response to the cries of the psalmist? What was our Savior's response to the disciples' very similar cries? Did he throw them out of the boat? Did he amp the storm up to another level? Did he kill off 10 of them to teach them a lesson so they have two at least at the end? No. Do you know what, what they walked away with? They said, who is this then that even the wind and the seas obey him? He was drawing them nearer into a relationship with himself. He was revealing who he really was, wasn't he? The trial of unknown cause, the disciples were like, were you sinning? Were you sinning? No, I'm good, I'm good. Was designed by God to draw them nearer. friends, I can't promise you that the requests you make today will meet immediate deliverance. The psalmist doesn't say that. He doesn't say, and tomorrow you'll be rich. Tomorrow that thing that you hate will be gone. What I can promise you is that whatever trial that you do experience will never separate you from your relationship with God. It's designed to bring you closer. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that that story? These guys pray for deliverance and then not a single hair on their head is singed. Not a single cloth smells like smoke, right? Sometimes that happens. When we pray, just answer. But then you have other situations like Job where like the prayers come and everything is taken away. I can't promise you that not all is gonna be stripped away. I mean, church history is filled with accounts of people being beheaded, crucified, devoured by ravenous beasts, drowning in the sea, maiming and broiling of members, goring and imprisonment. Those are just a few. We live in an easier time, don't we? And while I can't promise that your road will be easy, I can promise that every trial, I can promise that every inexplicable trial is being used by God to quicken your affections for him. Every loss of a loved one helping you give your heart more fully to your husband in heaven. Every pain, every agony, every affliction, inviting you to cast your cares into the arms of him who sees your suffering, who loves you despite your struggles, and who actually has arms of might to do something about them. The psalmist has said that it is for your sake that we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And though church history tells us that this could be your story, this could be your trial of that level, though it says that, we must still appeal to the same thing the psalmist does. We must cling to the steadfast love of our God. You see, this is the God who was steadfast to Job when all else had been uh, stripped away. This is the God who was steadfast towards Noah when the whole world derided him. This is the God who carried David through a season when his beloved son Absalom had taken his concubines and raped them, kicked him out of the palace and stolen his most famous counselors. The steadfast love of God brought him through that trial the steadfast of, uh, love of God is utterly relentless for you as well, for you and for me. You see, it's not the idea that the pain is going to go away right now that should fill our hearts with hope. It's the fact that no matter what happens, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what should free us from our situation, the unknown trial, that the burden that drives us under the waves. We should be freed from that, knowing about God's love for us. This is what filled Paul's heart with hope, even when he faced such terrible persecution. Romans 8, 35 35 through 38, what does he say? Famous verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says. That's the answer. Will anybody separate you from the love of God? No, he shouts to us. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure with Paul. Are you sure? I am sure of this. We will never be separated from the love of God. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. And why is that, my friends? Why are we bound up in a relentless, inseparable love from God? Well, because God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so, friends, this, this, in, this unconquerable, un, ir, 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 irrevocable, whatever the word is, love of God is dependent on a person. It's dependent on Jesus Christ. God sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins so that when he opens our eyes to see that we're sinful in need of a Savior, there was a Savior. So that we could see that even though we haven't lived the good lives that we should, there was a man who lived perfectly who's willing to take our blame and give us his righteousness. And, friends, if you don't know Jesus, the hope for inexplicable trials is not yours. The only hope you have is temporary relief. But if you trust in Jesus, you have access to a love that cannot be touched by demons, that cannot be touched by addictions, that cannot be touched by friendships being broken, that cannot be touched by the worst of trials. You see, the suffering of the Coptic Christians was inexplicable. They were heroically living out their faith, weren't they? And they didn't know why they were being dragged to that beach line. But a few years after, their remains were found, and they actually found that one of the 21 Coptic Christians wasn't actually a Coptic Christian. He was actually from Ghana, and he wasn't a believer at all. And those closest to this circle of friends were convinced that he was on the edge of conversion and that in seeing his brothers go to march to their death in faith, he would have received the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior. Did the Coptic Christians really know that though in the moment? As they marched blinded down that beach and they were killed, all they knew was, God, why? What have I done? But it was for his sake that they were experiencing that trial. They weren't aware that what was happening on that shoreline was eternally significant. There was someone who was calling out to Jesus as their Savior because of their trial. Friends, your suffering is for God's sake. He will never allow it to separate separate you from from his love. But he will use it in ways that are eternally significant. He's called us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And there's some, even in this room, who might have to face a similar fate as those Christians on that shoreline. And the hope that God gives us is that no matter the severity of the trial, the intensity of his love remains undiminished. No matter the lacking of God's obvious hand in your life right now, his heart beats with love for you. He will deliver you. He will deliver you. He will hear your call, whether in this life or in the next. And Paul calls you more than a conqueror because of it. Your conquering is of an entirely different class than overcoming death and tribulation. He's, you're not just a temporary winner. You're not temporarily removed from suffering only to suffer again. Your victory is of an entirely different kind. You are more than conquerors. You are those who are suffering with a purpose. You are those who are caught up in a war of heaven. And these battle wounds that you have, they're not marks of shame. Those battle wounds, they're marks of a war that the the world has started against heaven. You're on the, in the army of God, and for his sake, you march to victory by his grace. So even as you face the trial of inexplicable kinds, you lose a child, a loved one passes away, the whole world seems out to get you. You know that it's caught up in broader purposes, that no trial is wasted, that no suffering is pointless. You know that it is for his sake, and that is precious truth. God wants to prepare some of us for a future season of trial. And I pray he's done that today. And God wants to speak to some of us today who have stopped crying out to him, who are in the middle of the trial. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to deliver you. He wants to deliver you to a place where your hope is in him and your love for him is renewed. So in the midst of trials of unknown cause, our only hope is in our helping God. What a hope. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. I thank you that your steadfast love never ceases. Goodness never comes to an end. And Even when we don't understand your will, even when we can't trace your hand in our lives, we can know your heart is for us. I thank you for the precious truth to know that our lives matter even when they're the most difficult. And Lord, that there's something better than an instagrammy worthy life. There's something better than a picture perfect life. There's something that's caught up with heaven's war. There's something that's more than conquerors that experiences true eternal victory. And I pray today you would just send your Holy Spirit to comfort those who are weeping through trial, who are in that place of abandonment. you Fill them right now with your Spirit. And I pray you'd help us, Lord, to live for you, to have that mindset in our suffering that it's for your sake and a joy to suffer alongside our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire.